Let's see if we can get into these uh, things. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we worship Thee. Thank you, Lord, for the meal and the fellowship we've enjoyed together. And, Lord, as we look into perhaps technical truths, may we have the help of Thy Holy Spirit in the considering and internalizing our confidence in the Holy Scriptures which are able to make us wise unto salvation. Be with us, Lord, to that end. For thy glory we pray. Amen. Amen. I, uh, I remember, um, I think it was Corny Jansen in Niagara had asked me to go there and preach on the King James Bible and why we should use it. It was a Saturday evening and I thought I could cram it through in two hours. And I don't remember if we were three or four. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. No, so... (laughs) Uh, it is, it is a, a rich subject. So here, here's our premise, brethren. Here's our premise. All right? If, if you wanted to know the truth about the condition of man, where would you go? What would you do? Where would you look? Bible. If you want to know what God is like, where would you look? And so if we wanted to know about the Bible, where's our best place to look? <laughs> would one of the ushers remove him, please? <laughs> yeah, the Bible. What does the Bible say about itself? It's interesting, right? Um, Let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 3.15. If I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now the Roman Catholics, if I understand them correctly, use that verse to, uh, to ascribe to themselves the authority to basically say what they want. Because see, they're the church, and that's the pillar and ground of the truth. It's not sola scriptura, as the Protestants would say. But the, um, the custodians, the guardians of the word of God was originally the Jews. And then the church was originally Jewish. And then as a nation, they rejected Christ. And as Paul prophesied to them, God gave the guardianship of his word to um, the, foreign, the heathen nations, the Gentiles. And uh, the church is now the custodian of the uh, word of God, the complete revelation of Christ, right? Romans 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 2, I think, says, What advantage then hath the Jew, right? Much every way, chiefly, that because unto them were committed the oracles of God. It is essential in resisting falsehood for the church to have at its immediate disposal the word of God. Not something fallible. Does that make sense? What did I do wrong? Okay. Your original text 
First Timothy three fifteen. Fifteen. What did I say? No, fifteen. Fifteen, not fifty. Fifteen. Um, think about it, right? So, if the church is a pillar and ground of the truth, and false doctrine is being preached, how are we going to know? Say, well, by the Holy Spirit. That is true, but because there's so much that claims to be the Holy Spirit that isn't, the Lord's given us the Holy Scriptures, and uh, we need something solid, not fallible. And we need something accessible to the church. Um, the, the Roman Catholic Church at some point uh, only the clergy had access to the word of God that was one of the big deals of the Reformation I think it was Wycliffe who challenged the monks he said when I'm finished or God being my helper or something like that the boy that follows the plow is going to know more of the word of God than you pointing to the monk right? the clergy uh, were not only ignorant of the word of God but it was in the Latin and the, the uneducated masses didn't have access to the scriptures. I have a great friend with whom I had a, a quiet disagreement. He's, he's, he's a pastor and he's kind of been fed up to here with having to deal with all the crazy ideas that everybody thinks, you know, they've got the Bible and they interpret. And, and he said, um, he's not sure that your layman should have the scriptures. I said, brother, that's been tried and it didn't go so well. Better to have everybody with access to it and let the crazy ideas come and we can all sort it out together than to just have the elite with the scriptures and you've got to listen to us. We want the scriptures accessible to everyone. And uh, that's one of the reasons, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but that's one of the reasons as an English-speaking people, I don't give any platform to somebody to correct the English Bible out of the Greek or to rely on Greek to interpret it because it creates an elite class. It now hijacks the discussion away from everybody and it's just us educate and you've got to listen to us and there's something fundamentally wrong with that. So rather what I do is tell us let's all master the language God's given to us and here is the dictionary. Right? The Oxford English Dictionary. Not just any Oxford Dictionary. It's the complete one. It's takes about three foot of shelf space or you can get it compressed so it's big books and there's only two of them takes about eight inches and you need an electron microscope to read it but it has every word I think except your proper names every word in your King James Bible properly expounded and telling you the meaning of that word and the first appearance in English in old English which reads like another language and what it meant uh, at the time of the King James Bible and the various meanings of it and how the la- meaning of the word. So you can understand in English the meaning of every word in your Bible. And I want everybody to know that. So the more educated we all are in the scripture, true education, the better off we'll all be. So there's that. The church. God doesn't give the, make his church the pillar and ground of the truth and then keep the Bible from them. That would be weird, right? Make it so that, you know, um, Christ quoted the scripture when he resisted the devil. Is that right? It is written. And it's mostly reliable. It's not what he said, right? No, he quoted it like it was absolute. What did he say to the Pharisees? Um, 
when he was, they, they were arguing with him and John, um, if, it, it is written in, your, in the scriptures, I said, ye are gods, right? And the scripture, is that the place where it says, the scripture cannot be broken. The Lord Jesus behaved and spoke as if the very scrolls which he read were the immutable word of God. Not, right, jot and tittle. That's important to understand. We're going to look at uh, some things to do with the Bible we have available to us today. We're going to compare it to the Lord's Day. Because one of the things to recognize, the scrolls the Lord Jesus had, you know, Isaiah, he, he read Isaiah the prophet, and he found the place where it was read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, remember? And then he sat, he gave, closed the book, gave it to the minister and sat down. And for years, you know, I read it and I thought, that's so weird. You know, he came up, read, because I was raised Roman Catholic, you know, and he would have come up there maybe. I'm not sure which one is, yeah. anyway, the reader. And, and then he'd go and sit down in his pew, right? Or over there. But that's not the Jewish synagogue, right? The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Moses sat down to judge the people. And so Jewish rabbinical um, teaching was done sitting. The apostles sat in church to teach. The post-apostolic church leaders, I don't call them early church fathers, post-apostolic. The apostles were authoritative. The apostles are the early church fathers. Post-apostolic church leaders would write in defense of Christianity, said, we have the very chairs in which the apostles sat when they taught in our midst, you see. And so they, they would read the scriptures, they stood up to read, and then they sat to teach. The Lord didn't go and sit down in the congregation, he sat in the teacher's chair, which was the first time for him. He was accustomed to reading, and then the rabbi would teach. But this time, he closed the book, gave it to the minister, and sat. And all eyes were fastened on him. What's coming now? And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Can you imagine? There he sat in the seat of a teacher. His habit had been to read the scriptures. And now, for the first time, he was in the preacher's chair and preaching. Uh, And... He treated those scriptures like they were the very word of God, right? Say anything when either the apostles or Christ referred to the scriptures, there is no hint that, well, it's got some mistakes, but it's pretty good, or there's a few errors, but it doesn't affect any doctrine. Isn't that right? In every place, it's referred to as if it is the very words from Sinai, right? Not how they refer to them? Okay. So, (laughs) what's significant about that? Well, they were copies. The originals had long ago perished. The originals that God gave to Moses long ago needed to be made copies and copies. And, And so, If the attitude of Christ and the apostles to what they had was that it was the very word of God. Not mostly pretty good. Not mostly preserved. I got a bit wobbly there with Isaiah, but you know. uh, 
but the very words of God. We're going to see that. It's important that when you hold the Bible, when you read it, when you speak from it, that you are convinced that you are reading the Holy Scriptures and that you have no doubt in its truthfulness. And so we want to look at what God has revealed about the Scriptures. All right? Um, Now, having the scriptures themselves is not the only guard against error. The Jews had the scriptures and they still crucified Christ. Imagine how wrong they would have been if they didn't have the scriptures. So, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. What's our attitude? Uh, From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Do you remember that famous conversation, brother? Um, He and I had, this is one of the first times we met, wasn't it? Second, we got right into it. It would have been, I'd been reading and thinking a lot on the subject. So if something is not given by inspiration of God, then it's not scripture. Right? Isn't that fair? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So if it's not inspired, it's not scripture. If it's scripture, then it's inspired. So, this is something to chat. Now, this is mostly for Christian people that you will meet who don't. So, this Bible, it's either inspired or it's not scripture. Right? Uh, That's important to understand. And if it's inspired, then you're not going to correct it, are you? You're not going to say, well, this part here is a mistake. This part here shouldn't be in there. Because if you're doing that, then it's not inspired. If it's not inspired, then I'm not going to base my life on it. I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. Is that all reasonable? And this is a conundrum that people people face. So, um, scriptures given by inspiration of God. Uh, Paul elsewhere told Timothy... You know, to stir up the gift of God that's within you, and the gifts are given you by prophecy and laying on of hands and so on. But he emphasized that he should preach and teach the uh, the Holy Scriptures. Um, yeah, he's talked about teaching and preaching. First Timothy four six. You know, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Nourish up in the words of faith and good doctrine. Verse eleven. These things command. And teach, verse 13, till I come, give attendance to reading. That's the reading in the congregation of the scriptures. To exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, and so on. He tells him right there, don't neglect the gift. Take heed to thyself and to the doctrine, right? So he's, he's taught Timothy to continue in the reading and exposition of the scriptures. And the doctrine according to godliness, um, Chapter 6 and verse 3. 2 Timothy 1 verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. So he was to hold fast those utterances that Paul had, had made. Those teachings. 
Verse 2, two, the things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men. And Paul wrote some of those things. We looked at them in Ephesians. Um, you know, Ephesians has it, all of Paul's letters. Uh, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God. Study what? The Bible, the word of God. Um, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, continue in the things which thou hast learned. And we read verses 15 and on there. And chapters 4, 1 to 5, right? Uh, preach the word, right? Reprove, uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort with long suffering and doctrine. And um, preach the word. Expound the Holy Scriptures, the word of God. So with that, the church then needs to be united about what the Bible is. What it says, what it means. If we all read together, whether silently or aloud, we should all be reading the same thing, lest it sound like babble and result in confusion. Right? Um, now, I remember chatting about this with a brother. I won't mention his name. We, he's near and dear to all our hearts. Um, and he, he was, it was a new thought to him, so he didn't aim at it. He didn't reprove it. Uh, in Ephesians, let, let's, let's read a passage and tell me, I think it's Ephesians. Yes, there it is. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, here we go. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, but many different Bibles and read whichever one suits you. Don't you think that would just fit right in? With that? No, it's ridiculous. It's it's an absurd idea. Read whichever version you like. So that when you have a group Bible study and you're all trying to get the truth of Scripture, somebody can chime in, oh, I like the way it puts it in this version. You know? You can all just have your flavor of the month. Brethren, if there's one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, surely. And it didn't need stating because it was their experience. It's one set of scriptures. Paul's writing to a Gentile church. What language would he be been writing in, brother? Just to remind us. Greek. How many Greek versions were in circulation at the time, brother? Yeah, the Hebrew script. One. Septuagint. That was their lived experience. It was one Bible. Uh, how many versions of the epistle to the Ephesians were they reading at the time? It's one. Yeah. That was it. That was the church. Um, and to have a multiplicity of different renderings and so on so that we can argue about it. The church should be united. When Ezra read, right, from the pulpit and all the people stood up. They were all hearing the exact same words. In the synagogue, people didn't have their own copies, their own different versions. Just think about it. This was by the providence of God. This was in the fullness of time. Jesus, as as was his custom, stood up for to read. And he read from Isaiah the prophet. And everybody in the congregation was having one Version of the Holy Scriptures read to them. They were all on the same page in the most literal meaning of the word. Right? 
You didn't have one over there with the NIV and one over there with the New King James and one there with the NASV and one there with the RSV and the ESV and the BBC and whatever other letters you want to have going, right? Everybody had the same scriptures. That was in the beginning. And, uh, and Sinai, they were all hearing one word. Now, these things are so obvious, it's a shame to have to bring them up. And people think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're here and we're a cozy family. In Christendom at large, what I'm saying would be like, this guy is, doesn't know anything. I had a, a woman, she was the leader of the church ministries of the church. We didn't last long after she became the leader of church ministries because I thought that was upside down for God's order. The sister run around telling all the men what to do and what to preach and so on. And she said, the King James isn't the Bible, Martin. I didn't argue with her. I know what she meant. Um, I should have said, well, what is? What is? And their answer is there isn't one. And that's not the truth. The truth is there is one. Division, uh, we, we do want to say something. Division comes not from topics or issues, but from hearts, right? Music is not a divisive issue. Men's hearts are prideful and self-will. Modesty is not a divisive issue. Head covering, baptism, host of issues. The issues are not divisive. Scriptures are not a divisive issue. Hearts are divisive. And so... If I had a brother in the Lord or whatever, he's in another congregation or whatever, and I'm not going to try and... I did once. I did once those kinds of things. But I don't want to undermine his confidence in the scriptures. Uh, He's been blessed by it. Um, I would rather defend the scriptures than attack somebody's faith. My own uh, upbringing, spiritually speaking, I was taught that the King James was the best, but had errors. People corrected it from the Greek. I did the same. Um, The marginal notes bothered me. The the new marginal notes. The old marginal notes and the new ones are different. You know, the oldest and best manuscripts say this, and and this passage is, that shouldn't be in your text at all. So somehow I was led to search out the matter, and, and what I became... Persuaded concerning. And here's the thing, brethren. As I read about scholars, you know, people arguing this and arguing that and so on, is that what so many of these folks were missing is that this is primarily about faith. Scholars are going to argue until Armageddon. But how does, how does someone in China come to know that Jesus is his Savior? Is it by going to university and combing through the textual variants and analyzing the manuscripts and, and deciding on the best reading? Is it through that? Is it through reading all of the historians? Right? Studying not only the Hebrew scriptures, but the ancient Greek historians, you know, Herodotus and, and, and whoever, and, and the, the Roman historians, Pliny and Livy. Does he study hermeneutics and apologetics? Until finally, after two decades of intense study, he becomes convinced that Jesus is actually a real person and the Savior. Is that how it happens? Or has God put into the heart of every man and woman something that when the truth of the gospel 
of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ is preached, that they can recognize that is their need for forgiveness and a new heart, and that this is their Savior. Is that what happens? It doesn't take 10 years of university study. And then how is it that it should take a lifetime of study, at the end of which you can't even know for sure what is the Bible? Do you agree with me that people have taken something that should be a matter of faith as much as anything else? Um, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this. Right? By, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the world's were framed by the word of God through faith. Understanding and knowledge of things not seen come by faith rather than science. We are at the mercy of God, not the mercy of scholars. And since the original manuscripts are unavailable to man, they're not seen, we can understand that what we do have available to us is or is not of God by faith, not just science or scholarship alone. Right? So... Uh, and regardless of what is claimed, there is, um, yeah, anyway, I don't want to get into other religions and so on. Some claim, you know, they have the original autographs and, and they don't in their religion. They just don't. All right. So I want to say a few things about this just quickly. Review from this morning. What's the greatest commandment of the Lord Jesus for us? Love. And so if we are with a brother or sister who disagrees or who has their other version, what's our greatest duty to them? Love. And we know they're saved, so we embrace them as brethren. And we walk together to the kingdom of God and we can have friendly, loving discussions as is edifying, as occasion serves, as needed or not. But we're not going to cast people out or denigrate them as unspiritual or anything like that, as some people do. There are some really extreme people that profess the name of Christ. There are some, when I say extreme, um, that's maybe not the best word, because being extreme is okay. To love extremely, Jesus was the most extreme person. Greater love hath no man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. He was extreme lover. So being extreme is fine. Um, crazy is a bit harsh. Uh, but misguided. Very, very misguided souls. That say some very, very wrong things. And there are people who are King James only. That say things like, if you didn't get saved reading a King James Bible version verse, you're not saved. They exist. It's just nuts. Because right? it's corrupt seed and the word of God's incorruptible. So if you got saved reading an NIV verse, you're not saved. I think I've read that. Like that's just out there. Like we're not into any of that. That's not what we're going at all. We're looking for the Holy Scriptures to have confidence in, not going around trashing others or whatever version they're reading. That's not our goal. We just want to. Um, believe the word of God. Identify it, read it, receive it, believe it, live by it. That's it. 
Uh, so this is not to go and fight with other people or trash their thing. Um, many believers have used modern versions to good effect, and I'm not interested in getting into a fight with any of those people. Uh, but I do believe that it is evident from the scriptures that each congregation should be working from one text. That was evidently what the apostles did. That's what the Lord did. And I believe that's what we should do. I don't believe that was just luck and this because they didn't have the printing press. I believe that that was all part of the fullness of time and that it is a witness to us that the Holy Scriptures, not a version of the Holy Scriptures, but the Holy Scriptures implies a clear unity and consensus on what the Scriptures are and on which they agree. Is that, brethren, are we all together on that idea? We can have that. Um, And so we we want to avoid um, strife and wrangling with people. Uh, Lots of sincere people involved in various Bible versions and so on and leave them to their thing. We we want to uh, love the Lord, love his people. And encourage others to have faith in in God and confidence in his word. Let's look at some things here uh, about how how to interpret the scriptures by looking at the Lord's example. So this is is important. Uh, I trust. Matthew chapter 22. Let's look at a little passage here and see what's going on. There's a few examples we'll look at. Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus erred, right? So remember, the Sadducees have set a trap for Jesus here about the resurrection. This poor woman had to go through seven brothers. You'd think brother number four would be thinking, hmm, wonder if I'm going to survive this marriage. My other three brothers died, you know. Brother number six must be really getting nervous. But anyhow, um, think of the poor woman but as well. So just an awful story. But anyway, there it is. They're thinking they're going to show Jesus how silly this resurrection doctrine is. And Jesus said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now this, the Lord says, as a matter of fact, revelation. He's not quoting scripture. He's just telling them. These are the facts. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God? Now that is a piece of instruction. Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? And then he quotes scripture. We're going <laughs> to. Saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he interprets, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay. So their reading over a thousand years after Moses wrote the account of God speaking to Moses at the bush. 
And the Lord Jesus said, God is speaking to you when that scripture is read. When you and I are reading the Bible, the God of the universe is speaking to us. He's speaking to you, 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 speaking to me when we read it. He's speaking to you. That sounds pretty inspired to me, in terms of what. But there's more to it than that. Um, the multitude heard this. They were astonished at his doctrine. Verse 42. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any question. Now, brethren, let's look at something here. In, um, in verse 32, the Lord is quoting Moses' account in uh, Exodus, where um, God spoke to Moses at the bush. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And from that account, the Lord Jesus developed the doctrine of the resurrection. Well, that's amazing. Because that, um, this is a rebuke to those people that says, tell me where the Bible says I can't smoke. Because it's obvious if you read with understanding. I mean, is this talking about resurrection anywhere? No, it's implications. Implications, right? It's implied that if God is the God of Abraham, that the way he used the word is, right? I am the God of Abraham. That means that Abraham is alive. So that word, I am, not I was. Speaking of versions, there's a version that says, I was the God of Abraham. I'm not kidding you. What are these people thinking? They're just Anyway, I won't get distracted with that. By saying, I am the God of Abraham, the implication is that Abraham is alive, and since Abraham died, that means Abraham's raised from the dead. He's resurrected. And by putting it that way, I am the God of Abraham, God is teaching us in the Bible the resurrection. These are Christ's words. I'm not making those. This is Christ. This is how Christ interpreted the Bible. So it's not like you can just say, well, you're reading too much into the text. No, what's usually wrong is you and I don't read enough in the text. The doctrine of the resurrection is there. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You can hear the Lord Jesus say, think when you read. Now, I think I understand. I mean, I'm familiar with the the notion, and it makes sense, that the Sadducees only believed... Or believed that only the five books of Moses were inspired. And they rejected the rest of the Bible. And so rather than get into an argument on that. Like I would have probably done. The Lord just used that one. I, that may be why he didn't bother going to Job. Which would be easier. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though worms eat my body. Yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's pretty clear on the resurrection. Not to explain it like I'm five, you know, instead of this one, which is elite. Or, or Daniel, go thy way, thou shalt stand in thy lot at the end of days. That's pretty clear on the resurrection. 
But since the Sadducees rejected all of that and only accepted the law of Moses, well, the Lord took them there. So that's instructive for a guy like me who would have got distracted into a Bible version um, dispute. And the Lord just used their, um, their text. But look at how he interpreted it. And then later in the, past, the chapter, as we just read, Whose son is he? Oh, the son of David. And by saying, how then doth David call him Lord in the spirit? He used that psalm to teach the divinity of Messiah. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. He said, how, if Messiah is David's Lord, is he his son? Again, the Lord Jesus wants us to think and make connections. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Let's look at another one. Luke chapter 6. Verses 1 to 5. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields. And his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering them said, Have ye not read so much as this, what David did, when himself was an hungered? And they which were with him. How he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And what's going on there? Again, this is the Lord teaching. Okay, so follow. Follow. The Son of Man is a technical term for Messiah. And that comes from Daniel. I know the term is used as a prophet, Ezekiel. Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. But the Son of Man is Messiah. And that, I think, is Daniel chapter 7. Is it chapter 7? Chapter 7. Where the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days in the clouds of heaven. And that whole... um, uh, messianic uh, kingdom vision that Daniel saw the son of man Messiah so Daniel talks about you know 70 weeks are determined to thy upon thy uh, people right and seven weeks and three score and two weeks unto Messiah the prince so Daniel's talking about Messiah the son of man is Messiah the Psalms speak of Messiah and uh, the son of David the root of David as well the stem of Jesse And when the Lord says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, follow his reasoning. He's saying David was a type of Messiah. David was a king. And David went into the temple. You remember, he went to the the priest, not the temple, the tabernacle. He went to the priest and he lied. We would think that's wrong. He didn't bear false witness against his neighbor. He was trying to save his own life and the men that were with him. So he tricked the priest. And he said, I'm on a secret errand from the king. And so, do you have any food? And they gave him the showbread. And the priest like, I'm nah, not sure about this, but at least if the young men are clean, you know. And, and he did. And, and the Lord's saying, look what David did. And God let him get away with it. Because he was David. It wasn't lawful, but David was above the law. That's what that means. 
And therefore, Messiah is Lord of the Sabbath. And he's above the rules. That's it. Let's follow it. Trace it. Why do ye that which is not lawful to do? And Jesus said, haven't you read what David did? When he was hungered and they were with him, they went into the house of God to take and eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. Remember that David danced before the Lord and David was clothed with an ephod. That's a priestly garment. How did David take that to himself? What happened to Uzziah when he burned incense in the temple? God smote him with leprosy. It is not for thee, King Uzziah. Remember? Leprosy rose up in his forehead. He was prideful. He stepped out of place as a king and put his hand to priestly ministry. And God smote him with leprosy. But David was above all that by the ordinance of God. And therefore Messiah is above all of that. And therefore his disciples can eat on the Sabbath day. That's what he's saying. Can can pick these uh, things and eat them. That is the Lord interpreting that passage. That by reading a historical account about David, we're getting to see that... So look at the facts. David pulled a fast one on the priest, and he ate this showbread, and God didn't judge him from it. That's all we get when we read, right? We read that, and we think, well, maybe God kind of winked his eye because he was running for his life. But the Lord Jesus read it, And saw that David could break the law of Moses and be blameless with God. He was above it. It's not lawful, but for the priests only. But David was above that. And since Messiah is called the son of David, he's above the rules as well. That's what he's interpreting from that account. Now I'm not encouraging us to be reckless with the scriptures at all. It's very dangerous actually. But I am pointing out that there is much more to the scriptures than what you just see on the surface. And I'm zooming in on how the Lord Jesus himself interpreted the scriptures to make the case. I don't think anyone can argue. Look, how he interpreted it. If the Lord hadn't interpreted it that way, and I had interpreted it that way, you'd have said I was on my rocker. I was off my rocker. I was reading things into the scripture. I was making it up and I couldn't do that. And I wouldn't blame you. But because the Lord Jesus has done it, we now cautiously, reverently, patiently, and with wonder look at the scriptures to see what instruction there is for us. One more, and then we'll go to our texts. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. And I want us to reason together. I want us to think. Um, Galatians chapter 3. Here's the Apostle Paul. Now to Abraham... And his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, unto thy seed, which is Christ. Now, I think there's one place, I could be wrong, I'm I'm going by memory, where the word seeds, plural, is used in the Old Testament. Am I right? I think there's only one place where seeds, plural, is used. I think so. I could be mistaken. There is at least one place. And it's a commandment. Thou shalt not sow thy garden or thy field with divers kinds of seeds. Plural. And what that would mean is that you don't put wheat and barley and oats. 
Those are three different kinds of seeds, plural. But you can sow it all with wheat seed. So it doesn't just mean one seed, it means one kind. That's how I'd understand it. And by saying thy seed, he's referring to one kind, and that kind is Christ. Everyone flows from Christ. That's how I would understand Paul there in Galatians. In chapter 4, but notice, notice how Paul's interpreting. He's saying that because he used the word seed, singular, instead of seeds, plural, he's saying he's speaking of Christ because he's speaking of one. Would you and I have got that out of that text? Galatians 4.21 Tell me ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren, that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Would you have got that? Would you have called Ishmael mocking at the weaning of Isaac persecution? Would you have seen the religious persecuting those born after the Spirit in that little episode? Be honest, I wouldn't have. The Spirit of God clearly intended it. That that, and that these historical facts are allegories. Or allegories, depending on how you like to emphasize your syllables. Oh, you say syllables, so do I. Let's see if you're nodding off. So... So the historical accounts of scripture are also spiritual allegories. We need to go slow and thoughtful, don't we? Meditate day and night. There's so much in the word. And, <clears throat> and this is the thing I want us to, to see. These are the two covenants. The, the, um, the child of Hagar, Egyptian. So you see the connection. Okay, so Ishmael, Isaac. Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, Ishmael. Sarah is a covenant with Abraham. Hagar, that was of the flesh, that was human ingenuity. Hagar is Egyptian, Egyptian was slavery, bondage. And we're making these connections, what God is teaching us. So there's a lot involved. We've got to make connections when we read the Bible. And I've just taken these, and that's what Paul's doing, by the Spirit of God. So we're learning several things. We're learning not only what those passages are saying, we're learning how to read our Bibles. And to make connections through the Apostle and the Lord. Who's with me still? No one's glazing over? All right. So, <clears throat> what we've done then, is we have, we've looked at, love is the greatest, 
And uh, we're not going to be denigrating people or abusing them or whatever. We've considered that the accounts of Scripture are that the Lord and the apostles relied upon the Scriptures as if the very Word of God. That Scripture inspired, if not inspires, not Scripture. And that congregation should have one common book that they all regard as the Holy Scriptures. <clears throat> That's where we're at so far. And now we've looked at how the Scriptures expound themselves <clears throat> as a guide to how we could expound. Now, <clears throat> maybe I shouldn't, and for our sake, get too bogged down with common beliefs. <clears throat> but you might come across this. Uh, it's commonly believed today that only the original autograph was inspired. And then the copies, no copy is inspired. Right? You know that, right? So what, what, uh, what they'll teach you in seminary, in Bible college, is that when Paul wrote Ephesians, except he didn't, um, who, who's the brother that wrote Ephesians? Uh, Paul's dictation. Doesn't say. Except in a little footnote at the end of mine, says uh, Tychicus. Right? What's called this, you know, $10 English word, the amanuensis. Did I get that right, brother? Amanuensis. It's a secretary. So the apostle will dictate and the guy will pen it down. And then Paul will take his, you know, pen and sign it. <clears throat> and <clears throat> now that's an interesting thing. Was Tychicus inspired? See, people come up with these ideas and they don't really think them through. And then they become almost like the Bible themselves. This is great. Keep this going. Um, <clears throat> so, the, the heat, you know. So think about this. Oh, wow. Thank you, son. That's very kind. In the chair or something, a stack of hymnals. Think about what we're saying. So, when Paul wrote, um, spoke his epistle, and Tychicus copied it down. <clears throat> Orthodox doctrine says that that was the inspired epistle to the Ephesians. I don't know how they work out, like, was Tychicus, he was just a faithful brother, like you and me, was he inspired? So this is a question. So Paul was inspired in what he said, but has anybody ever copied something down while someone's talking? Trying to write it down? No? You ever heard something wrong, got something wrong, wrote the wrong thing? Try it sometime. So, did Tychicus get it all perfect? Or did he blunder right out of the gate? Or then Paul would review it and say, yeah, that's all good, and sign off on it? How did that work? Did inspiration apply to Tychicus? But never mind. So let's, let's not bug them too much. So now this first letter to the Ephesians is inspired of God. And then it goes to the Ephesian church, and the church at Colossae says, hey... <clears throat> or Thessalonians, hey, we heard Paul sent you a letter. Can we have a copy? And so they get whoever's there, Epaphroditus, or, well, he wasn't a Thessalonian, but whoever, and he copies it out, and then off he goes to the Thessalonians. And so Orthodox Christianity says that copy is not inspired, and it could have a mistake, and, and we've got to do, apply textual criticism to find the mistakes. Now, what I would say is certainly a mistake could be made. But how can you say that nobody making a copy of the scripture 
was helped by the Holy Spirit to do that. How, where do you get that from, that idea? And I think I can prove from the scriptures how that idea is actually very contrary to God. The, the problem is a lot of worldly atheist thinking is in the churches. Do you know that one of the rules of textual criticism, as it's called, you get all these manuscripts, so this, you know, P65 and B1 and all of that, and this fragment, and you are analyzing. Criticism doesn't mean, oh, this is bad, and that one's worse. It's not like, you know, a boy criticizing his younger brother. That's not what it means. It means using your critical faculties to try and figure out what's what. But one of the rules of textual criticism is that you cannot allow that there was any spiritual being involved influencing the person right now, or copying the, the text. That you cannot allow that any of these copies, that the scribe was helped by the Spirit of God. Nor can you allow that he was deceived by an evil spirit. In any manuscript, you can only assume that it was just a sincere human being doing their best. And I would ask you, where would you read the Bible and come up with that idea? It's the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible would say you're going to be moved by one of those two spirits. Either the spirit of God or an evil spirit. Especially when you're dealing with the word of God. So you have these man-made rules that are spoken and assumed that they're like rules from God. And they're unbiblical. And that these things guide the decision-making process. And this is why I began to see this whole, they've completely gone off the rails from the pathway of faith to try and be accepted of the atheist secular scholarship and departed from faith. Why can you not say that God was with some of the scribes and helped them to faithfully record his word? Wouldn't God do that? Some of them might be complete shysters and they wrote completely false accounts. But wouldn't God be with at least some of the Christians copying out from the word? Isn't that the most reasonable um, belief? That at least some of the copyists were helped by God to produce an inspired copy. Yes, brother. Go ahead. Amen. Yeah. Well, we're going to look at those. Yes. Yeah. So God filled with the spirit of God, craftsmen to build the spirit and uh, to build the temple and the tabernacle before them. Right. He called them by name, Ur and Bezalel. So, so those are things too. Uh, and I would suggest that any, or I would state clearly any doctrine of the scriptures must be consistent with the revealed nature of God. Is God an absent watchmaker? That's, you know, some people believe that, right? God created the world and he went off to do something else. And he just left it spinning on its own. And uh, he cannot be known. He exists, but he's moved on to other things. It's called, I think, I think I've got it right. The absent watchmaker theory. Is God like that? He inspired his scriptures <clears throat> and then abandoned them. Uh... We're going to get ahead of our, ourselves, but let's, uh, yeah. Wow, time's ticking.
Let's look at some things. First thing, some easy ones. Genesis chapter 2. And let's, uh, let's reason together. Verses 15 to 17. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, depending on how you view things, this is the first commandment that God gave to man. Some would say that be fruitful and multiply is the first commandment. Fine, I don't want to quibble about it. But this is the first commandment that man quoted later. This is the very first word of God that man quoted, right? Because then we see the, the serpent in, verse, in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle... Than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then... Your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now there's a lot going on in here that we can see. Remember how the Lord Jesus interpreted the scriptures. When God said, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, the Lord Jesus saw the doctrine of the resurrection in that. Right? Let's see what doctrine we could reasonably look at in this. Reasonably. So, in chapter 1, blessing, be fruitful and multiply. But the first word of God that was quoted by man was this one. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, Watchman Nee criticizes Eve. At least he did when he was alive. In his book, if I remember it correctly, and may the Lord forgive me if I'm misquoting it. I think I remember reading, now we're going over 30 years of reading this, that he says the woman was presumptuous and added to the word of God. And I take a different view. And I cannot say, you know, authoritatively watchman is wrong, but here's why I take a different view. Up until this point, the woman had not sinned. Neither the man. And so I assume that everything she's done up until this point is not sin. And so, I take a different view from Watchman Nee that she's just presumptuously adding. Here's what I would interpret looking at this. Uh, in chapter 2, God said, took the man, put him in the garden to keep it. And then in verse 18, it says, it's not good for the man to be alone. He should make a woman. He, he made a woman, right? I'll make him a help meet for him. A help meet for him. What I understand the Spirit of God to be signifying here is that God spoke to Adam first. And this is why I would say this precedes 
uh, verse 29 in chapter 1, God blessed them. That this commandment was given before Eve was alive. Commanded Adam. And Adam commanded Eve. Don't eat of that tree. In fact, don't touch it. So Adam added to the word as a precaution. Don't even get close enough to touch it. That way you won't be tempted to eat it. Right? I remember the Baptist pastor Brian Teeson telling a story about a little boy. And his mother had made some homemade jam. Big jar of homemade jam there. And she told him, I think, don't have any of the jam. And off she went shopping. And the little boy sat there and he looked at the jar of jam. Thought she didn't say don't look at it, right? She said don't have any. And after he'd spent some time looking at it, he thought I'm going to smell it. So he took the lid off and he got up close and and he smelled the jam. You know where this is going, right? And after he'd been smelling it a little while, he thought, well, I'll just take a little taste. Mom really meant don't have a significant amount. She won't mind if I just taste it. Well, this poor little boy, by the time his mother came home, he was elbow deep in that jam jar. (laughs) And it was actually a preacher that had told this to, to the Baptist pastor there. And he said, now I've always loved my mother, but at that moment I did not love her appearing." And he was talking about the Christian, them that love the appearing of the Lord Jesus and how to be always ready and so on. This little boy would have done well to get him out of the room rather than sit there and stare at the jam jar. Amen. That's right. And so Adam, in wisdom, commanded his wife, don't even touch the tree. And Eve, now... Uh, This is how I'm understanding what's going on. You can criticize it or not. God told the man, don't eat. You can eat of every tree, but don't eat of that one. And now the copy of that word added to it. And it was the word of God. The woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst, God hath said, you shall not eat of it. Neither shall you touch it. So it was a longer version. And the God had expanded his word through the first prophet, Adam. Alright, so this is what I'm observing. About how God works in his word. His first inspired version went to Adam. <clears throat> and it was a shorter version than the copy that Adam gave to Eve. And both of them were the word of God. You see what I'm looking at? Is that reasonable? Now what I'm trying to identify in these passages and the many that we'll look at is how does God work? I want to know the ways of God. And I'm not going to learn them from an atheist in a university. I'm going to learn them from the Holy Scriptures. And what I see is that God is not obligated to make A second version identical to the first for it to be his inspired word. And I'm going to, I think, prove that several times through this book itself. So that when we come, remember we're on a journey here. Sean has told us 
trace the historical account of how the text came into being and was handed down from generation to generation. What I want to do is to look at what this text tells us about how God works in the affairs of men. And so that with that now in the eye of faith we can look at a book that presents itself as the scriptures and see if it is indeed the scriptures. Is that fair brother? Is that reasonable? To see the ways of God. And this is what I observe. That God spoke first to the man. But he spoke through the man to the woman. Both were the word of God. And the second version was longer. That's what I see. It was the word of God. And the next thing I know is the devil. The devil says, you shall not surely die. Okay, so the devil contradicts the word of God. That's what I get out of that. And he, has, and he says, God doth know, right? Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And we'll see it, that it did pan out that way. So another thing I noticed is that the devil includes a lot of truth in his life. Right? So these are some of the ways of God and man and the devil. All right? Uh, So what happened? The word was verbal, not written. The commandment was clear. The devil changed it subtly. Notice the, the devil said, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay, so let's compare that. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. That's one rendering. Let's look at the original. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. You say, well, that means the same thing. No, it doesn't. So, changes to the text... And the subtle changes in meaning come from the devil. Right? The devil has a specific interest in the word of God. That right at the beginning when God gave his word, the devil came to subtly change it. These are what I'm observing in the very text. That the eternal God is revealing to us about how he works and how the devil works. That God is interested in his word, man's interested in word, and so is the devil interested in his word. The devil will quote his word, the devil will produce his word, and the devil will twist his word to lead men astray. Do you know that in China, the Chinese Communist Party has them producing a Bible, and they are changing it. And so they have Jesus, instead of saying to the woman at the, um, taken in adultery, go and sin no more. Did he command them to stone her to death? And he concludes with, for I too am a sinner. They're changing the word of God to bring Jesus down. And they don't mind that kind of a religion. Only the emperors to be worshipped. I'm going back to ancient Rome, where the Christians had to swear the emperor our Lord, or they were killed. It's right there in the beginning. God gave his word to man. Man gave, um, prophesied his word. The hearer, in this case Eve, quoted the word faithfully. And the devil was right there in between to try and subtly change the text. Now none of this has changed. 
and we need discernment. All right. So the word was verbal, not written. The commandment was clear. The devil changed it subtly, shifting the emphasis, giving a slightly different rendering. The woman quoted it, and um, Adam may have told her not to touch it. Uh, and it was probably the words of her husband. So she expanded. The devil then contradicted it directly. All right? So uh, <clears throat> God gave his word to his man, expecting him to communicate it to his wife. This is both inspiration with the expectation of transmission. Okay, again, this is, this is the, the ways of God. The man adapted the original commandment to suit the needs of the next generation. And this was done in a pure, sin-free state and was good. Both the original word and the transmitted word were the word of God. Okay, so these are important principles to understand. God spoke only to Adam with the expectation that Adam would speak to Eve. So right at the start of inspiration, transmission was expected. Could have done that if I tried, right? Landed just like that. Transmission was expected. Remember, there are three issues with Bible, with the Word of God. Inspiration, which is the first giving of the Word. Transmission, which is the copying of it to the next generation, passing it on. And translation, sending it to another language. So those are three issues. Inspiration, transmission, and translation. Right at the beginning, we see that inspiration had a view to transmission. And there was no sense that, oops, it botched. There's no sense. Um, And that if it needs to be expanded upon in the transmission, that that is part of inspiration. Is that clear, brethren? Are we all with me there? Did I lose us? Did I lose anybody? Probably about four people and they don't want to put their hands up. That's how it is in the class. I get that. We should probably, I mean, it is four o'clock. Do we want to stop there? Or do we want to go on a little bit more? Yes. Yeah. We could just take questions because it is for it is for, isn't it? Yeah. So we should probably wrap up some questions and leave it there. Go ahead. Yes. Um, in principle, I would not say it isn't. I would have to look at the specifics to have an opinion. But um, I would see that as no different from the, the speaking with tongues on the day of Pentecost. If those tribal people had been there and their language was there, I would expect that the word of God would have come forth in their language in a way that they would understand the wonderful works of God. And so, in principle, I wouldn't have a problem with that. But the specifics I could only comment on if I knew, right? I've heard that in one language, because they had no clue what bread was, and the only thing they, you know, the staple was sweet potato, 
I think they had in, you know, Jesus, I am the bread of life as I am the sweet potato or something like that. Which, you know, I want to just laugh when I hear that. Uh, To hear Jesus say, I am your sweet potato really sounds funny. But I, I wouldn't just out of the gate say, no, that's wrong. You must be this way. God knows those things. I don't know everything on this subject, far from it. But what I think I know from the word of God is what we can do with the scriptures he's given us. And this is where we're going. You can see where we're going. We're going to look then at transmission. So inspiration, transmission, copies. Then what does the word of God say about translation? Because you will hear in the seminaries, no translation is inspired. And I would just say, says who? What does the word of God say about inspired translation? And actually, the scriptures indicate that translations can be and have been inspired by God. So, who's to say God could only ever do that once? Like, just, just want to push back on these assumptions that men have made up and look at what the word of God has said. And so, where we're ultimately headed is, yes, we can read this English Bible as the inspired word of God and receive it and live by it. That's where we're headed. And I think I can demonstrate that by the things that it says about itself and about those things. We'll, we'll wind up with, with these, right? So we've observed um, that the devil subtly changed the emphasis of the word with harmful intent. The change was not drastic and was within the broad frame of the original, but it was dangerous, right? Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Didn't say any. He's not saying you can't eat of any of them. God said you shall not eat of all the trees. But God said you may eat of all the trees. Except this one, right? Um, Of every tree thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. Well, it means the same thing. No, the difference is distinct. It's important. Yes, the end result is you can't eat of every single tree. This one you may not. But the way you put it here, you can't eat of every tree. See, that's what I said. You may eat of all of them except for one. See, that's why I said you can't eat of all the trees. No. The way God put it is the right way. And you're a liar. The devil. Right? Now, don't go calling your brother that with this weird Bible translation. I'm just pointing out what we see In the text, the devil then directly contradicted. And this twisting of the word of God and the woman engaging now led her into temptation. And she moved away from her first faith and led to sin. Right? She started well. God said, don't even touch it. So he starts with a twist on the word. She responds. Seemingly rightly, the Lord also responded with scripture. But then... This allowed her to engage, and this was her downfall. Some conclusions then. The inspired word is dynamic in transmission. It may change form, but not meaning, and it remains inspired. Uh, God added words as needed, and we'll see that again in the prophet Jeremiah, for example, and in the Pentateuch. And subtle changes in meanings and contradictions to the word are of the devil. All right. Now, these things are important to us when we're looking at this. So what's happened? When the apostles wrote their letters and they were copied 
And some copies were wrong. Sometimes, you know, you get into a heretic group and they, I don't like that part and they'll change it. Those things happened. But you also had faithful ones. And where we can believe is that God, for his church, has provided for that to be um, done properly. And then he had it um, printed and published and uh, preached. And you're reading about revivals, brother. Most of the great revivals in the English-speaking world in the last 400 years have been through the preaching of this book, King James Bible. God has confirmed the word with signs and wonders following And we can have confidence in it as the word of God. That's what I want us to look. I hope, if nothing else, I've increased our confidence in the word a little and inspired us, or motivated us rather, to go and look deeply into all that is there in the teaching of the word. That it's not just, you know, oh, look, Abram, and oh, Ishmael's mocking at the weaning party, but that uh, what truths are God speaking here let's close this later father we want to approach these things with reverence and deep humility and be those lord that hear the word of god and keep it all of it lord uh, not moved aside O Lord, strengthen us that we be not like those to whom Christ spoke, saying, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say, but that we would do all that is in thy word. Faithful servants, loins girded, watching for thy return. So strengthen us, Father, against all the cunning of the wicked one, against the lusts of the flesh, to walk after the Spirit. Always, we commend one another to thee, Father, and to thy keeping power and grace. In Christ Jesus' precious name, amen. To be continued.